0: Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for outstanding comedy series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 527th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a terrific Irish actor who the New York Times has said is known for his electrifying, typecastifying turns in a range of movies, big and small, who backstage has called a chameleonic performer, a character actor trapped in a leading man's bone structure, and who Interview Magazine has noted has had a very impressive career so far, but is still somehow cruelly underrated, and only getting better. His standout credits include 2002's 28 Days Later, 2005's Breakfast on Pluto, for which he received a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, 2007's Sunshine, and 2021's A Quiet Place Part Two. He also anchored, between 2013 and 2022, Peaky Blinders, the massively acclaimed drama series about a Birmingham gang during the years between World War I and World War II, which aired on BBC Two in the UK and also streamed to massive numbers on Netflix. But he is probably most associated with the films of Christopher Nolan, having appeared in six of them over nearly 20 years. 2005's Batman Begins, 2008's The Dark Knight, 2010's Inception, 2012's The Dark Knight Rises, 2017's Dunkirk, and most recently, 2023's Oppenheimer in which he plays J. Robert Oppenheimer, the American theoretical physicist and father of the atomic bomb, and for which he won the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Drama, was nominated for the Best Actor Critics' Choice Award, and is nominated for the Best Actor SAG, BAFTA, and Academy Awards, a man who Nolan has described as one of the great actors of his generation, both on stage and on film, Killian Murphy. Over the course of a conversation at the L.A. offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 47-year-old and I discussed why and how he suddenly shifted paths from making music to acting, why and how he fought for the role of Tommy Shelby on Peaky Blinders, how he and Nolan first came to work together, what distinguishes Nolan's sets and films from others, and how he reacted to being offered the lead in a Nolan film for the first time with Oppenheimer, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Killian, thank you so much for joining us and great to have you on the podcast. We, on this podcast, truly go back to the beginning. For for our listeners, can you share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living?
1: I was born and raised in Cork City and my parents are retired teachers, both of them. I come from a long line of of teachers and headmasters and yeah,
0: you know. and now I think maybe at with their encouragement, it seems like music was was really the thing for you before acting- How did you you know what kind of hooked you on that and and can you share with people who don 't know just how far that that really went yeah, from a very early age, I fell in love with music, uh just listening to it,
1: and then Playing guitar and playing drums and being in bands and going to gigs and my parents would take us a lot to um, traditional Irish mu- music sessions and, and my brother played a piano and my sister played mu- my sisters played music and it was kind of just there in the in the background all of the time but I, I I became truly obsessed with it and we had a band when I was in school with my brother and then that sort of evolved into another band as we got older um called the sons of mr green jeans which which was a name that we stole from a zappa song we were all zappa heads and um yeah then we got offered a record deal that was this that was a big moment and some of the band members including my brother were you know under 18 so they had needed their parents to sign the deal for them, but the, those the parents wouldn't, and they said, "Fine, if you guys want to go and you know, do that," and, and uh, but the, but they wouldn't, so it, the whole thing collapsed.
0: Right. Yeah. Now it seems like this was this happened at the same time as like a bunch of other very important things in your life. I it seems like honing in on it around August ninety six. You're twenty. Yeah. Can you just share what? Hit in that month that has totally changed the course of your life in so many ways. Yeah. So August '96 was a big month for me. I um,
1: I failed my first year law exams. Um, I failed gloriously, <laughs> and then I, yeah, the, the the we got offered the record deal. Um, I met my, uh, wife uh, that same month. And I also um, auditioned for a part in a play called Disco Pigs. Um, And so all of those things became huge events in my life, which I didn't realize at the time that they would be such huge turning points, but they were all massive, you know. Well,
0: so this last one that you bring up about sort of uh, um, really auditioning for the first time for any acting gig, right? I mean... It's, I could, uh, you know, I've tried to do my research and get it straight, but I, I, it's possible I've got this wrong. But is the guy who you asked for the audition, was he somebody who you'd previously had as a teacher years earlier? No.
1: Um, So there was, there was a theatre company called Kirkadurka Theatre Company. And at the time it was run by Pat Kiernan and Enda Walsh. And they were like co-artistic directors. And Pat was the, he would direct the shows and Enda would write them. And uh, I used to pester Pat Kiernan around in Cork City in pubs and stuff and because and, I, I had seen a production of his that blew, blew my mind. And I, I was just curious, you know. I, I'd never been to the theatre as a kid, um, but I was just very curious about it. And uh, he eventually said, all right, leave me alone. You can have an audition. And, and then he was out of town, so
0: I auditioned for Enda Walsh, who was the writer of the play.
1: And that's how it came to be.
0: And the play that we're talking about, Disco Pigs, just to kind of familiarize people i guess a little bit at least um sort of a, a unusual couple in cork where you're also from yeah. and this thing as i understand it was originally supposed to be 3 weeks in cork and yeah. somehow becomes 2 years all around the world exactly yeah. and this is with a guy who had never so much as audition let alone acted in anything before yeah how did you did you just sort of you were just uh Right at home when you when you did audition, or how did it, how do you explain it? I've always kind of felt
1: comfortable being on stage, from when I was a small kid, yeah. and the first version of it was playing music, and then when that didn't work out or it came to a, a kind of a dead end with the band, then theaters sort of. It was an easy segue from music into theater for me because it was the live experience again, and there was only two of us in the play—me and, and an actor called Eileen Walsh—and the and the the parts were like really amazing, and it was all in this tiny contained space. Someone said like that the the, spa- the playing space was the, like the dimensions of a pool table, you know? <laughs> yeah. And so we had created this whole world between the two of us in this tiny little space. And it was incredibly visceral and, and like End had written this language, this sort of made up language that they both spoke between each other. That was kind of a mixture of cork and made up words and this kind of pat- patois that he had de- developed. And then there was kind of brilliant, brilliant, Banging music in it, and um, and um, I, it just felt quite rock and roll to me, and it felt r- really instantly. I felt like I can, I, I'm into this. I mean, I was still didn't it, it, it ever see it as a career, but I was along for the ride. So we started getting invited to all these festivals and started winning prizes, and then more festivals started. So it just, it just kind of snowballed, you know.
0: And it's interesting because you've said that as you moved to larger venues, you feel it may have lost some of the magic just because it was originally such a an intimate experience. Right? Yeah, that, like I remember one of the first
1: um, venues we played it in, in Dublin, in the International Bar upstairs. I remember the audience were so close to the stage that like every time we'd turn, it would, like, we'd cover them with sweat in the front. <laughs> you know, it was that because we were like sweating profusely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was such an intense piece. And then we did a run in the West End in London in Ninety-seven, maybe, maybe uh, ninety-eight. I can't remember, but it was a, it was a disaster because we were in this big old traditional proscenium March theater, and, and this tiny little play. It just it got sort of it's swallowed up by it. You know, it wasn't right. designed for that. But that, that's what you do when you're that age. You kind of experiment and see how things, how far things you can take things. But you're right. It was more. It felt like uh, much grungier than a big proper theater. And
0: I just want to note for listeners that uh, Enda Walsh is somebody who's going to come full circle, even in terms of upcoming projects. You guys are yeah. still working together. But in terms of theatrical stuff after Disco Pigs, there's Mr. Man, Bally Turk, Grief is the Thing with Feathers, on and on. And, and Enda has said in terms of when he first met you, quote, And I think he may be a little off on the time, but quote, I think he was 18, 19, but he looked about 13 and he had this incredible energy and aura to him, close quote. So this show of his becomes that, you know, two year uh, marathon, which you have described as kind of the most important period of my life. Close Mm. quote. Uh, Is that because it just was sort of it really put you on on the map or is it for more personal reasons even than that?
1: Um, Both really, you know. I met my wife at the time uh, and we were, she, she kind of came around and toured with us. You know, I I dropped out of college. I moved out of home. Well, I had been out of home, but I was like definitely not going back home. <laughs> uh, um, and, you know, I was hanging out with those guys with Enda and Pat and and Eileen. And, you know, we were, you know, all this sort of y- your approach to theatre and your approach to the arts and what you value and and writing and perform, all of that was really formed at a very... Uh, accelerated pace during that period. Um, and, you know, like Enda and Eileen and and my wife Yvonne, like they're still the, some of the most important people in my life. And so obviously it, it, it was huge in that respect. And then I was learning how, how to be an actor. Right. And, that's, I, the, and to me, the best way that you can be an uh, learn how to be an actor is just by doing it. Right. So I was doing it every night on stage and then like we were doing matinee shows and so the, it, it was a
0: fantastically exciting time. And you've pretty regularly since gone back to the stage. I mean, it's not yeah. like it was left behind when, because it's interesting that, so Cisco Pigs, then they make a movie version of it, yeah. which was the first movie that you really had a, a substantial part in. I had, done, I had done a couple other movies.
1: I, I did a movie that same year called On the Edge, John Carney directed it, oh, and yeah. I did Disco Pigs that year yeah. as well. So, they, yeah, it was. They were the first time. There was those two movies were the first time
0: I was actually getting leading parts on your own know, right. film. So the film version comes out in two thousand one, and I guess one of the people who who saw it or certainly was aware of it was a woman named Gail Stevens. This is Danny Boyle's yeah. casting director. Do you know? So she says to Danny, "You gotta, you gotta check out this this." Film, or just how did it end up leading to you meeting Danny Boyle, who is somebody who I know had had meant a lot to you as a film goer?
1: Well, I've always believed, you know, that work begets work in this business, and hopefully, good work begets good work. And you know, the film came out, and you know, it wasn't a huge film, but it 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 we brought it to Berlin, I remember, and it uh, it got some nice reviews, and it did well enough in Ireland, but then. Uh, yeah, Gail Stevens saw it somewhere and showed it to Danny. And Danny was at the, that point casting 28 days later. Um, and, you know, I, you know, me, like many other fellas my age, I had a train spotting poster in my bedroom. I saw the movie the very first day it came out, you know, in Shallow Grave as well. Hey. Those movies were very important to me yeah. growing up. And I, 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 he, he is such a, a phenomenal director. So when I heard about it, I really desperately wanted to to do that part. And he, and he put me through five or
0: six auditions. It was a long process and there was a lot of guys competing for it at the time. I just want to interject the part that we're talking about here for anyone who hasn't seen it. This is Jim, a guy who wakes up from a coma after 28 days and suddenly finds that London has been decimated by a mysterious virus of yeah. some sort. And uh, for Danny, this was... The script by Alex Garland, who's obviously gone on to other things, but who had previously written The Beach, which Danny made into the movie. So you now come in through that audition process you've just talked about, finally get this part. Did you realize, you know, that this could be this was going to be a, a game changing opportunity for you just in terms of visibility and all of that? Um
1: the, the the thing i realized was that it was for the first time a, a, a director of note a serious serious director who had a, a really serious track track rec- record um but it was a tiny little film made on a very small little budget um and at that time zombie pictures were not cool or you know <laughs> they, they and i was not familiar with the genre honestly i hadn't watched all of those romero movies and i and i never felt while we were making the movie that it really was a zombie film because right. We were talking about this rage virus and it was it was really talking about what was happening in the world at the time. And then I remember SARS came along and then all of a sudden 9-11 came along. And so the world changed really, really, really quickly. But then when it came out, uh, it, particularly in America, actually, people went nuts for it. Yeah. And it kind of uh, rejuvenated the whole zomb- zombie genre. And it was the first time that these creatures... Even though in our story they're called the infected, right. that they were they were actually terrifying, and they could they were fast. Yes, um, and D- Danny directed it so brilliantly, and the script was so smart, and
0: uh, so that did change things for me back then. Yeah. Well, and and uh, I guess in a few ways. First, I want to ask you about the the personal impact because you've you've since spoken about and consistently twenty years now plus about the fact that you know. Okay, so this little movie becomes a big success, and suddenly people are very curious about you. Yeah, and that that is not what you necessarily signed up for, right? Yeah. How did you acclimate to that? What what have your feelings evolved? I mean, just basically, must have been a jarring time.
1: It, you know, when 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 I was doing Disco Pigs uh, again, I was like, yeah, well, let's see what happens. It'll just go on the, just go on the on the ride, and and then. And then when that play finished, you know, I was unemployed for a year and then I started getting more jobs in theatre and I thought, right, I'll be a, I'll be a theatre actor and I'll, and I'll do that. And I was so happy doing that. And we were touring around Ireland. And I was doing great plays with uh, Drew Theatre Company and I was having a great time for myself. And a film I was, you know, mildly curious about and I got a little part in short film and a little part in supporting parts and slightly bigger films. And then all of a sudden, you know, the disco pigs came around and... You think, right, well, I've got to play that part. And so it's like, I suppose I'm trying to say to you, I never had a plan or an ambition. It was very, I'm just happy to be working. Right. Um, and then when 28 Days Later was a success, you think, well, I might as well go and have a meeting in America, you know, and uh, might as well get an American agent and see what happens. But it was never like, because it was I had fallen into becoming an actor, yeah. I never possessed that driving hunger to succeed, I was just genuinely thrilled to be doing it. But, but at the same time, when you're given an opportunity, you, you take it and you yeah. think, right, let's challenge myself here and see if I can do this and see if I can make a, you know, like take move to the next level and play a lead part in a, in a studio movie or a support part in a studio movie, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. So, and in terms of like, if you're sort of uh, asking about how it affected in terms of like my recognizability or fame or any of that... It didn't change that much. You know, back then, films would come out uh, for a couple of months and they would go. And so people might recognize you for a while, but then it would pass. Whereas now it's the the whole machine is much different and TV makes everything much, much different now. So it it didn't change much for me personally.
0: I guess professionally what it did, as you say, suddenly there's more interest in meeting you in Hollywood, uh, L.A., uh, I love that you said uh, um, everybody – called me silly, and that that all changed that when 28 Days Later became a big hit, suddenly they could all pronounce my name. They're
1: they're, they're still working on it. They're still
0: working, (laughs) (laughs) But I guess out of those meetings, would it be correct to say some of the things that might have come out of that? There's a a good supporting part, The Butcher's Apprentice in Girl with a Pearl Earring. There's um, a part in Anthony Miguel's Cold Mountain. And then, I don't know, maybe this was... You know, this is a slight bit later, but you'd already, I think, been pursuing Breakfast on Pluto, right? Yeah, that was um that came about because
1: uh, I made a film called Intermission that Neil Jordan produced. Um So I would see Neil Jordan around again and I, I pestered him. I believe I wrote him a letter as well. And um, I was I, I was I was a fan of his movie. The, the, the Butcher Boy it was an extraordinary piece of piece of work, extraordinary book. And he was kept talking about maybe making Breakfast on Pluto. And I adore that book. And I think Neil is such a fantastic filmmaker. So, yeah, again, I just, I annoyed him.
0: <laughs> uh, and then he kind of gave in. Well, because part of it was you were up against the clock, right? You had to be able to play this this person who was in their teens for a yeah. portion of this. This We should just say Kitten Brayden, a, a a trans teen who experiences all kinds of Uh, assorted adventures in 60s and 70s england neil jordan had previously kind of gone into that territory with the crying game which was 13 years earlier but now i guess that may have been part of why he took so long to decide to actually go with it right probably yeah probably another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family.
1: but it's a very different film. Yes. Um yeah, I did know that I think when I played that part, I was twenty-six or twenty-seven. So I did know that there was a ticking clock that I wouldn't be able to play it that long. So eventually we we got it made and uh and I, I have huge, huge affection for that char- character and and uh, I really went 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 for it and we
0: had a great time making it. And I'll just say, I mean, uh, Golden Globe nomination. It was a very well received among critics, critical circles. I remember I think that was the first time that I'm sure I'd seen 28 days later. and yeah. but, but this was like people were looking at you as, uh, you know, a force at this point. Um, and I think that that year must have been even though that I think was probably made a little bit before 2005 it comes out in the same year you're playing this kind of psychopathic guy totally different guy in red eye for west craven it's the same year that you're in the first of your nolan movies batman begins do you remember just that that your experience your experience of that year as all these things are coming out and people are starting to realize it's the same guy doing all these different things
1: yeah, that was a kind of a crazy year. Uh in in a, in a good way. You know, I had three three films that came out, two of them the the Batman movie and Red Eye again they really hit home. They were big hits. And then Breakfast and Pluto was a bit of a critical hit. And uh yeah, it was it was it was kind of crazy cuz it was a kind of a quirk of distribution, you know, that they all came out one after one after the other. I hadn't anticipated it. So so that was a bit of a shock. That's where things did change a little bit uh, for me in terms of uh, like the kind of pressure or recognizability or, or whatever. But it was all good. And I, I suppose I was spending more time over here than I had anticipated doing that. Because you were living at that point in London? I, we were, yeah, we were living in London, but just making both those movies, the, the batman and red eye they were made them over here and then i was over here more, more more and more but uh so it was an interesting time yeah and i was i mean i was still quite young i suppose looking back
0: yeah well i want to obviously focus a bit on this beginning of your now six film 20 plus year collaboration with with christopher nolan it starts with batman begins again 2005 is the release but First of all, do you know how you first came to Nolan's attention? Uh, apparently, he saw he didn't
1: see the movie first. He saw a picture of me in the movie. Uh, of twenty eight like, days later. Of twenty eight yeah. days later, with like, like the shaved head and the covered in blood, and yeah. he was writing Batman Begins at the time, and he said, "I don't know who this guy is, but we should we should get him in, or I should meet him." Yeah, which is crazy that he would do that just off a picture, but anyway he did and i i happened to be in la and i met him and he's still writing the script and i was a fan you know i had seen memento and insomnia in the cinema i remember going to see memento twice in a row because i was so impressed by it and so i was a, a huge fan and then we we met and you know we're not that dissimilar in age he's a few years older than me but we're kind of around in around the same age and um so we just sat down that day and spoke for hours, like it genuinely we spoke for hours and we I, I sort of got on very well very quickly and then he said, "Listen, you should come and test for Batman and I did think that was a silly idea you did I did because I didn't quite have the physic I was very very slight back then and i and I really felt like that 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 didn't make sense. And I knew that Christian Bale was one of the people testing. And it felt to me that it should be oh, always a big Christian Bale. But nevertheless, I wanted to get in a room with Chris. And when we did the test, he had they had built sets. They were shooting it on 35mm. It was properly lit. And they had the Val Kilmer bat suit. And we, so we each actor got to do a Batman scene and a Bruce Wayne scene. So it was very elaborate. And he really directed us and spent time with us. And... I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved doing it, but I knew I, it, it wasn't right. Were but that you was literally
0: the, in the? Had to wear the bat suit?
1: Yeah, yeah, all of us did, and like, it, it's it's a great buzz to have to <laughs> to do that, and I, I really enjoyed it. But then I was like, well, uh, that but that was something I will never forget, and at least I got to work with Christopher Nolan in, in a tiny <laughs> way, and that'll be it. So I flew home, and then he called me about a week later, I think, and said, look as we thought, that you're not going to be Batman, but I have this other character. right? And then he had to convince the studio, because up until that point that all the Batman villains had been like huge movie stars. Jack
0: Nicholson, all this different, yeah. Yeah,
1: and Jim Carrey and Aaron Schwartz, you know, so he he convinced them anyway, or they saw the the tape, and they gave me the part.
0: What was your initial kind of uh, explanation of who... Dr. Jonathan Crane, Scarecrow. Who who was this guy? As it was told to you.
1: Well, I remember um, DC sent me all the the early comics. It's one of the earliest villains, so I was reading all of those. But mostly we were just working off the script, and um, I just it was so brilliant. It was like it's just an out and out baddie, you know, like <laughs> like I've, a lot of the characters I've. Um, Kind of played over the years of operating this kind of, kind of, uh, you know, they're like anti-heroes or like, you know, they're in that sort of weird gray area, and I love that because that's humanity, and we're all have a bit of contradictory, right. if you like. But with uh, with Crane, he was just kind of mad, you know. Right. And so it was it was great to be able to go a bit big and to go a bit broad, and and uh, and Chris on set, me and Chris had a, had a bit of fun immediately. And he would say, "Yeah, just try it out." So,
0: I loved doing that. I, I really loved having a bit of fun with it, you know. And doing it across three films, right? Because this yeah. is Batman Begins in 05, The Dark Knight in 08, and then in 2012, The Dark Knight returns. Um, Rises. Excuse me, Dark Knight. Right, oh, I'm gonna get killed. Uh, Dark Knight Rises. Uh, so, question, you know, because. Just even in between those were other things like Inception that I'll I'll bring up. But you've sort of you've said that even though Nolan's movies right through Oppenheimer are these, you know, large scale, huge studio productions, they feel to you like not unlike the indie things that you often also do. How can that be? What do you mean by that? It's just the way he runs the sets.
1: I mean, he, he, has, he does make these movies on a big scale, a big canvas, but the way he runs the sets is that there is uh, Chris and the DP and the boom op on set, and that's it. And there's no video village or monitors or anything like that. So that was the case on right from the beginning on Batman Begins for me, right up until Oppenheimer. Mm-hmm. So it, re- it makes the actors feel really, really secure and safe and cared for. And, you know, Chris stands beside the camera all the time watching you with his eyes. He has a tiny little shitty monitor with <laughs> like AAA A batteries that he that's been around since like the 90s that he occasionally looks at for right. composition. But he's mostly just looking at the actors right in front of his eyes. And... uh so you're unaware of the huge huge trappings of a studio picture the only time would be like i remember on the big some of the big set pieces on inception for example you'd have a couple of cameras out and we we'd all stand around and watch those or similarly on some of the batmans but generally for performance it's that and i think that that, that intimacy or that focus on performance is what elevates his films above others is that it's all about the performance
0: and there are other things that that you and other actors who have worked with him have talked about as you know they some people kind of present them as as oddities or eccentricities of his mm-hmm. but like it does sound like it's with a eye towards a, the the kind of um environment that you're creating the environment that you're talking about but yeah. like no phones on set yeah no kind of chit chat really yeah, I'll come back to that. Okay, we'll come back to yeah. that. You know, just just that kind of thing where it's like minimal distraction.
1: Yeah, he's not a big fan of um, toilet breaks either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, the 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 no phones thing, though. Yeah. I I am a big advocate of that as well. I, yeah. I I don't think they belong in any work.
0: Yeah, yeah, work, right
1: workplace environment. They shouldn't be there. You know, we're here to work, right? Not to scroll, right? And uh, I I think they should be banned. Um, but the chit chat, now we, there, we do have a laugh and we do we do uh, when there's time, but yeah. he uses time incredibly well on a film set. There, There isn't like a lot of the waste and faff and chat, ch- chat about nothing Yeah, that doesn't exist on a Chris Nolan set. Like I'll, we'll do a lot of talking in, in pre-production, but when we're on set, we're on set to work. Right. And I, I love that. And, you know, if we want to find something, we're not going to find it chatting about it. We're going to find it through right. trying it out. And that's what we do. And and it's a joy because it's very, very rigorous and focused. Um, but to me, that's just kind of lo- logical. You know, I, I think these other conventions build up because they're easy, right? but it doesn't mean that they're better.
0: There's also a, a thing where I think you've talked about sort of a sense of everyone's an equal partner in a sense yeah. on the set. You've talked about, uh, I think it was with even Oppenheimer, where... You know, you guys are staying in a motel by the freeway or every no personal makeup people, no sort of i mean, we we did something with Downey a while back, and yeah. he's saying, Wait a minute, you're saying no, no, per, like minimal per diem, like you're giving this is my laundry bill, and you're, <laughs> that's my, uh, that's my, per. so just like for, for other people as you've seen them, cause you've been there since 05, as okay. people come in and out of his movies, is it a, seems like a bit of a, a learning curve for, for other people? I, I suppose it can be. Uh, I suppose it can be. He doesn't really
1: hire movie stars, he hires actors, right. and that's right. the distinction that he makes. And they may be, to the rest of us, movie stars, but when they come to work at a, a Christopher Nolan, said it's it's actors. That, but you know that thing about staying in motels by the freeway. Chris is also staying in the motels by the. You know what I mean? It's not he's not off in a fancy hotel somewhere. He's he's there the same as the rest of us, getting the bus to work and all of that. Like so, he's mucking in. He's leading from the front and leading by example. Do you know? So there's there isn't one rule for that him and one rule one rule for us. But it's just I think trying to take away a lot of the superfluous waste and time and expense yeah. that goes, that has grown up around m- movie making. And if you know, uh, if you have laser focus in what you need and you know exactly what what shot you need, then you don't need a lot of these other peripheral things, right. you know, that other filmmakers, I think, rely on. So it's incredibly lean uh, set, but I have never seen crews work as fast But with such kind of joy, they all want to be there working with him because he just knows what he wants.
0: It seems like you that may be what you've just said, knowing what you want, maybe the most, you know, no matter who the filmmaker is, in some ways, the most important thing to you as an actor to know that your director has a vision and and is in control, because you've often talked about the fact that the film you made with Ken Loach, The Wind that Shakes the Barley comes out in 06, the year after Batman Begins, won the Palm at Cannes, but, you know, in terms of scale, couldn't be more different than some of these Nolan movies. And yet, and again, you auditioned, I think, six times yeah. for this part. He's uh, a med student turned freedom fighter in the early 20s. Uh, but but you've spoken about it as one of your favorite acting experiences. And it's yeah. totally different from anything you would have ever done with Nolan, but similarly gratifying. what What was it about... Loach and, and that film. Uh, that, yeah, that profoundly kind of
1: changed how I approach uh, work or screen acting. Um, because those of you who don't know how Ken works, it, well, the way he works is that he, we, we don't get a script. The actors don't get a script. Everything is shot in chronological order. He just insists upon that, which is you never, ever. Ever ever get on a film set because logistics don't allow for that you don't you don't return to locations it doesn't make any sense, but <laughs> he does it, and so you what happens is that you experience a lot of what the character is experiencing in real time in in camera and so there's no time to prepare or intellectualise or you just, it just happens. And so you get this incredibly honest, honest reaction from the actors and you're processing the information as you go through the story, as the character would be. So all your, you know, highly annotated scripts and pretentious notes and uh, like, you know, all of that stuff yeah. goes out the door. It's it's u- useless to you. And for me, it became a, a massive moment for me because I had a kind of epiphany, which is that... Nobody cares about all your research and your weeks and weeks. All people care about is the truth on the screen. And you can do all of the research, and I still do it, but I just park it when I get on set because it's just to be present in the moment, experiencing what's happening. That's what matters. And and if it's not glamorous or sexy or grandstanding, that's okay too. But if it's closer to the truth, that's what people respond to.
0: And sometimes with his films, and I guess this film in particular... If you look surprised, it's because you actually were surprised, right? Yep. I mean, there were things that you didn't expect that are just thrown into a take.
1: Yeah, so things are less considered. You know, um, speeches are less considered. People stumble over the words. People people str- struggle to find the right thing to say, and that's what we do as human beings. Right. You know, no, that 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 system clearly cannot can't apply on many, many film sets. And Ken is one of the greatest filmmakers in the world and he's a master and he's, he's devised this way of working because it suits him and suits the stories that he tells. But for me, it was just, it was a huge, huge lesson, one that I've never forgotten that I still use.
0: Wow. Now the year after that, you are back with Danny Boyle, but that doesn't, just because you and he made the film that became this giant hit, doesn't mean it's like, the part is yours. It sounds like this was another one you had to, you had to earn it, right? Yes, we we did, and I should say I'm talking about sunshine. This is where you are playing your first brilliant man of science, Uh and in this case, one of eight people sent on a mission to reignite the sun. And so, Danny, I guess, mentions that it exists. And do you want to read for it, or what was it? I knew that they were. He was seeing other people as well, Um but
1: I, I again, I, I said. But just let me let me let me read for you. If if that's the case, I'll just read for you. And I did, and he and he gave it gave it to me. And it's a it's a film. I, you know, I really I really love that 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 movie. I haven't seen it in a long time, but um, I loved making it. I loved the script. I think it looks extraordinary. I think the performances in it, like the cast, is yeah. insane. And for whatever reason, it didn't kind of connect in the in a bop box office sort of a way but a lot of people it's grown in stature a lot of people love love it love it now as a kind of a classic modern sci-fi
0: well and i i guess on your from your part of that i wonder how you felt i mean for i don't know that you'd ever yet played somebody who there's it's not a man of a lot of words and so here you're you're doing a lot of acting without dialogue mm. um and then also a lot of acting i imagine opposite green screens and stuff like that? There wasn't actually that much. I have, in my career to date,
1: I think maybe I've done... I no, actually don't think I've done any green screen acting. Really? I mean, the the only bit and sunshine was that big sequence at the end, you know when he meets the sun where they have this kind mm-hmm. of communion. That that was there was some green screen elements there, but there, there was also a huge wall of lights. They had built this huge lighting rig to to move towards me, so you could so I have never been in a green room oh, ever. Wow. We built the whole spaceship for for sunshine like the whole thing was was built. Wow. So I, I've actually never done any proper green screen. I've never acted to a tennis ball. I've never uh, done any of that. So I'm very unfamiliar with it. And I think I'd be terrible
0: at it. How about the, uh, I think I got the sense that you kind of do relish the challenge of communicating without words. Is that, yeah, yeah? I've always, I've always
1: loved that. And and it actually, weirdly for me, goes back to music Yeah. because I remember playing with my friends and, and, you know, a lot of the stuff we used to play was, was instrumental music and it was communicating to each other uh, without any words, but we knew what we were saying to each other, and we, and we could tell where we were going, and and the music we would we would kind of echo each other and respond to each other. And I think you can do that uh, in, in acting, you know. And I love love a silence in films. I'm a huge fan of it. Uh, so I, I, I'm always trying to cut my own lines um, because I think uh,
0: if you can do it without talking or telling then it's more powerful. Yeah. Quick thing about the ending of sunshine. It's really interesting and kind of open to interpretation as far as whether or not what we're being shown actually is occurring. Yeah. Uh, what was your read on that as you as you played it? You mean the monster at the end? Yeah.
1: The metaphysical stuff. Yeah, yeah I, I, I I I will never give an answer on that. <laughs> I was I, trying. I had I, to try. <laughs> I, I think it's always better to leave it. I mean, you know, like people ask me about the spinning top and inception right. and all that. Like just like it's I love it when things are ambiguous and right. everyone has a point of view. That's that's what art should do is is yeah. is, is is make everyone have a different perspective.
0: Well, as long as you mention Inception, let's let's say this was the first non batman nolan movie that you did with nolan comes out in 2010 you're this guy robert fisher the heir to a rich businessman who has to be i guess incepted is the word or infiltrated by leonardo dicaprio's character to try to convince him to break up the conglomerate that's going to inherit the uh that he's about to inherit in the interest of global peace for for something like that project uh was it different at all? Didn't did Nolan work differently than when he's doing the Batman movies or just, and we'll obviously come to, I guess I can bring it in here as well. Dunkirk was in 2017 where you're playing the shell-shocked army officer who's rescued by Kenneth Branagh's character there. But just, you know, is it, is it a, at all different working with Nolan when it's not a, you know, when it's not the Batman type movie?
1: No, his, 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 his approach is the same. I think the 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 thing about inception was that he had lived with that story for 10 years before he got to make it and it was an an extraordinary script like I, I just don't know how he managed to put that on paper and then to make it into a film and then for it to be this staggering juggernaut of right. of, a, of a of a success success and um I I was just in, th- thrilled to be for him to be making a truly original Christopher Nolan film, you know, that, um, and again, what it was like, it was a stunning cast and we got to fly around the place making it. And I think what he came to me on that one was for the, it was the kind of emotional core of it. You know, this spoiled brat of a, of a, of a boy man has this kind of awakening with his father. And, um, was really lovely to try and play that because, again, that had to be truthful and honest for the rest of the movie to work in, the, in terms of the plot. And that scene with Pete Possilwaith uh, was one oh, of my wow. faves in my career because he was so bloody brilliant and so generous in that scene. And uh, and I remember we, re- we really had to get somewhere there and he couldn't have been sweeter. And... More giving in that scene, and again, I think with, sometimes in those scenes, me and Chris, like we don't talk about it too much. We just we both know what needs to be done, and he'll just say, All "Right, off you go," and you, we we just do it. And occasionally, he'll come in and adjust. He gives the best best notes, really? you know. But it, I love the fact that we don't need to talk about it too yeah, much. You know, yeah. we we both understand at this point, and we both trust each
0: other. We both know what the outcome needs to be. And you know? was a similar thing where. You know, Dunkirk, it's not a ton of screen time or whatever, yeah. but it's a powerful, powerful moment. Um, how did he guide you on that one, if well, at all? There's a story he likes to tell about this one.
1: I was <laughs> at a Q&A with him last night and he said, he was like, you know, Killian asked actually when I sent him this, he said, Will you, I, can I play a Spitfire pile instead? <laughs> <laughs> apparently I did. Because he said that this part wasn't really finished. And he said, but I need you to get come out on this boat with me and we're, we'll finish it together. We'll find an ending for him. And we did that whole sort of the bit where at the end, Rylands kind of puts his hand on his shoulder and it's almost like the closing of a circle that, you know, he's lost his son. And then this is, you know, it's kind of an emotional, yeah, a closure, if you like. And um so that was amazing too, that Chris would have that faith in me to bring me out onto a boat and right. for, for weeks and we'd figure it out together. And I knew there wasn't that much screen time, but I knew that the bit that I had, I could make an impact with. And he represented all of those soldiers that came back who were just broken and they didn't take care of of them because that were you know that 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 PTSD didn't exist. You know, so um, I felt a kind of uh, a sense of responsibility.
0: And even though uh, Dunkirk came after or in the midst of of this next project I'm going to bring up, there is that PTSD, I think, commonality with Peaky Blinders. Yeah. And um, again, if anyone's living under a rock, this is Tommy Shelby, leader of this Birmingham gang called Peaky Blinders during the years between World War One and World War Two, Stephen Knight's show six seasons between 2013 and 2022, I guess sort of inspired by Stephen says his father's uncles or yeah. had been in the actual yeah. blinders. But, um, the question here is, so this, this comes along right around the time you're doing the, the dark night rises, uh, I think, um, can't remember approximately <laughs> and goes on the uh, TV for the first time in 2013. But, how did this even come to your attention? And were you actively looking for a TV project? This is just as your film career is, you know, really revving up for some, for many years in, in this industry, it would have been seen as a step backwards to go Mm -hmm. do TV. Now it's, you know, thanks to people like you, it's a golden age of TV, but just was, was that, how much of a consideration was it that you would be signing up potentially for multiple years of a, of a, of a character on a show? Well, there's a couple of answers to that. The, the first one is that I've never had a kind
1: of a preference for the medium. To me, it's always the story and mm-hmm. the part. And that's why I've moved between theatre and film and television. It, it's I'll follow the good writing where, yeah. wherever it's to be found. Yeah. Um, and when I did sign up for it, we, we were just contracted to one series on, the, on BBC Two. Uh, and in fact... I think all the way through, there was never, it was like, you know, they would re, re-contract you every every season, but it, it never was like, right, we have you for 10 years like Aye. they do over here. So that was kind of freeing. Um, uh, and then I was aware at that time, I remember I'd watched The Wire, uh, the whole thing, and I, I was blown away by it. And I remember saying to my agent, is there any like Irish or British version of this that exists? Because we at that time, they, they weren't being made right. um, like you guys make it here. And then two days later, these two scripts came in from, from Stephen Knight, and I read them and said, I've got to play that part. Wow. That's extraordinary writing.
0: Now, my sense is from things I've read, there was some skepticism on the part of people involved with the show, and maybe even on your own part about, I mean, here you're being asked to play this very kind of physically yeah. eccentric, imposing guy i read that there was even some some maybe a text that sealed the deal addressing that but what was what was that all about for as far as you could tell in terms of just having to convince people maybe yourself that this was a part you you could physically inhabit yeah i think up until that point you know the
1: the i had never been considered for those types of roles like you say like the kind of tough physically imposing uh, characters and he, you know he is this this decorated soldier that's just come back from the trenches and, and like uh, he, he's uh, very capable physically and uh, violence is just a form of expression for him and all of those things so but I, I I kind of felt like I could do it but I knew that I needed to go and work on it but I've always felt like you know your body is part of your a tool as, one of your tools as an actor in that you you know you condition it. For the parts, for to to, and I I remember saying to the Key people like, I know when when I walked in the room today, you, you know, like, with my floppy hair and my skinny jeans, <laughs> that's not the vision that you have in your head, right? But if you give me time, I can do it for you. Just trust me, I can do it. And I think apparently I sent a text to uh, Steve Knight saying, "Remember, I'm an actor," and uh, afterwards after our meeting yeah. and then
0: I, meaning uh, i can be what you need me to be yeah
1: i've always i've always struggled with auditioning or or meeting because even when i was a younger actor because i i, I would always walk into a room and i i, I, I you know i would be being be myself yeah. and and i think like you're not going to see what i c- can do this is just a a snapshot and even if i do a reading it's going to be uh, like a, a, a millionth of what i hope to achieve with this character and it's we still don't have a proper system for you know getting actors to really be able to show what they can do in audition. you have to see the potential yeah. you have to see the spark of something and sometimes it gets missed and i i missed a load of jobs because i was so bad at at, at auditioning um but you know sometimes you just need someone to ha- take take a leap of faith and go go with it and thankfully in this case steve and i did
0: and really over the course of the six series seasons um it really seems like you arrived at a conclusion that coming back to PTSD, that this is what what made this guy the way he is and with the proclivity for violence and a lot of other aspects of his personality was just the horrendous stuff he'd experienced during the war, right?
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, he's such a damaged, broken human being when we meet him and he doesn't really get any better over the course of the show. (laughs) But I did, what I really wanted to play was that, like for all of these people, that there's st- stuff that is so egregious and appalling about them, you still have to play them as a human being. So I think we managed to get that into in with the character all the time, and that was a lot to do with Steve's writing, which was so multi layered. And um, so, we, and and, and uh, yeah, you, you wanted to make him vulnerable as well as appalling
0: at the same time, you know. And I guess it's it's the kind of show that really is the best argument for long form TV because there's no way, right? This could not have been a standalone movie. You needed the time to yeah. understand, right, that this yeah. what what this what it's what's been done to this guy, how he's evolved. Yeah. Um, was it something an experience for you, this idea of playing a character over years that you would like to do again? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you
1: never it depends know. Depends on the character. It depends on the character. Yeah. Like, I, I never anticipated us making thirty-six hours of of Piki, and that it was it would take ten years of my life. <laughs> I mean, I did all this stuff in between, right. as you say, but it was a gift. I mean, to grow old with the character as well, and to grow older, and to, to be able to put that back into the character, your life experience, put it back in was was amazing. Uh, uh, so. Yeah, it was, it's a part of my life and a part of my career that I'm really, really proud of. Mm. But in terms of taking another one on, I don't know. It would be very hard to find a character that matched him in terms of writing, I think,
0: for me. And a show that could have this kind of impact, we should say, far beyond the the haircut style and all of that, we, there are now piggy Blinders, bars, restaurants, tours, yeah. clothing lines. It's it just the following is so passionate and, and intense. I don't know if... I imagine you you feel that when you're out and out and about, like just the people. Is that one that comes up as much yeah. as any? I think probably
1: the probably the most, the most yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because the nature of television is that it's there all the time. People keep discovering it and rewatching it, and uh, people are obsessed with it in the best way possible. So, uh, yeah, it's it's really really flattering that it it, it it seems to exist in the common culture and it's just locked in.
0: Yeah. Well. One other that I'll mention pre Oppenheimer because it sort of connects to Oppenheimer is A Quiet Place Part Two. Oh yes, where your you know your uh, kind of principal co star here ends up being your principal co star in Oppenheimer. Yeah. So just anything you want to say about working with Emily Blunt on that one and and her husband John Krasinski. Yeah. Uh, this is Quiet Place Part Two comes out in twenty twenty one and then not that long after and 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 even. Uh, And not long after the end of *Peaky Blinders*, Oppenheimer enters the picture. I guess. Well,
1: I went to see *Quiet Place* with the first one with my two boys in the cinema, and we had the best time. I thought it was one of the greatest films I had seen, you know, and a sort of a fresh French original, fresh franchise. I thought it was so stunningly directed, and um, I. Didn't know John or Emily, but I penned an email to John Krasinski, and then got really kind of embarrassed and deleted it and <laughs> didn't send it. And then, and then I think it was a year later, he wrote me an email saying that they, you know, himself and Emily had been watching Peaky and that they they were making the second one. And what I what I what I read the script and I was I couldn't believe it. You know, that's but that, that, that that's some good kind of karma there, but. Anyway, I love those guys so much. Like we've become great friends, and I, they're my some of my favorite people in the world. And making that film was such a, a beautiful experience because you know I was part of this fictional family in the film, but then I also felt like I became part of the, their family. And and um, and then when we went to make Oppenheimer, and Chris said, "I'm thinking about Emily." I mean, he doesn't do anything by accident. Yeah, do you know? And he, like me, is such a fan of her, like her range. She can just do anything. She truly can. And, but I think by putting him and, or me and uh, Emily together as husband and wife, I think he got something for free. Yes. You know, a little bit, which is that trust thing that we have and that, that connection that we have. And uh, we work very, very well together, um, me, me and her. So uh, yeah, Chris was very smart in doing it, and you know, just to because to, that was a tough shoot on Oppenheimer, and just to have a pal there with yeah. you, uh, uh, and she's such a caring, she's just the most caring, compassionate person. Um, so she really looked after me. But it, but it was I was so thrilled to have a pal on it because I didn't really know anyone else on it except except for Chris, you know.
0: Well, so let's go back a step because prior to Oppenheimer, the five previous. Nolan Murphy collaborations you had always played important but supporting characters yeah was there any indication any advance you know warning hey I'd love to find something where you can be the lead in one of my films or whatever or it's just out of the blue will you be Oppenheimer like how did how did this get broached yeah
1: it's strange for me because normally I'm pretty good and direct and I've written letters to people in the past and I've been approached people and said, I love your work and all that. But with Chris, because we've known each other for so long and because he, he is such a particular director and he works in such a particular way, I was I felt like, well, look, he, he calls me up. That's great. And I'll turn up. I don't mind turning up for a day and doing this because I, wa- I love those films. Mm-hmm. But yeah, deep down for me, I would have loved to have played a lead for him. You know, I think mm-hmm. any actor in the world is, it, it would love to be in his film. But to play a lead... I mean, it's a a dream. So there was, but there was no indication. There was no, um, I knew nothing. I didn't know he was writing anything. I didn't know anything. There was no preamble. And then Emma called me and because Emma Thomas, his wife and producer and passed over the phone because he doesn't have one. And then we, he just said it out of the blue. And, you know, it's a, that was a massive, massive moment. Was there
0: any pause knowing how much you would actually be now responsible for here I mean this was a guy who's going to be in I think pretty much every scene of a three plus hour movie Uh, it's there's physical demands that this was going to have there are um, you know it's going to be a draining thing was it any not even a second of of reservation? Or how did you respond?
1: No, I didn't. I didn't hesitate. I never have. I just, uh, I said yes straight away. And, and I luckily, like you mentioned it there, I had just finished peak 6 and I, it was about six months after that and I was I hadn't worked and I was reading stuff and nothing was really, uh, I don't know, hitting home for me. And then he just called up so it was the perfect time because yeah. I could easily have been about to start something and not available or anything, you know, so right. it just, it was all very serendipitous. But I did know that it was i mean a, a huge part not just in Chris's script but like he is a, a huge figure in you know in the 20th century in in the world and i knew that it was massive yeah but i said yes straight away and then he, he came to visit me about a week later in dublin with the script
0: now as you say this is he's coming to you playing a guy who he's described as the most important man who ever lived yeah um no pressure, this, no pressure right uh you have six months which actually isn't that long at all right to get yourself together so that means whatever additional research you were going to do whatever additional physical stuff to achieve this is kind of a gaunt looking guy who i think you've talked about he basically lived on martinis and whatever else i guess cigarettes Cigarettes. um so just what what went on in the six months leading up to that 57-day shoot? And then that 57-day shoot, the way, you know, Downey's been around for a long time. He said he's never seen anybody have to work as hard as you did during—he felt guilty, I guess. You, they'd get weekends or nights or whatever sometimes, and it was always, you know, sorry, we'll see you later, Killian.
1: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was very very intense. It was really really fast. The, the 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 six months prep seemed to go really really fast as well because there was so much to take in, so much work to do. You know, I was working, I was working on getting the physical physicality right and the voice right and the walk right and all of that stuff, and then trying to get as much stuff inside my head about him as well, and and that time in the world and the the history and. Um, so I would fly out to L.A. quite a lot and we would do camera tests and makeup tests and costume tests and uh, I would speak to Chris all of the time. But then a lot of it actually was me at home in my basement just walking around talking to myself and <laughs> trying things out, you yeah. know, and then sending Chris videos or talking to him. And and then I, I constantly just reading stuff at the same time and then trying to get the sh- the physical shape, right, you know, that's part of the conditioning the other way. So peaky, you have to go one way with this other, right. you have to go the other way. And and all of those things. But I, I you know, it's, it, goes, it goes back to what I was saying before about, you know, instinct. So you'll, you're never going to be finished when you walk onto a set, no matter how much research you've done. You can do it for like 18 months, or two years. By the time you walk on, you have to be in that moment there and available mm-hmm. and as a human being do you know mm-hmm. um and it has to be the energy in that room not the energy you've brought from your basement right so uh i felt like we were making it when i got on there i had done all the work i could possibly do in the time that i had but that was when we were making it and that was like it was the script and what we were in what the energy was in the room with me and the other actors and chris
0: what's your indication about whether or not your work is Working, you know, like, do you have to, is it just if Chris is happy on the day? Is it the movie comes out and the reviews are positive? What's your metric? Because in this case, obviously, it's a huge swing as a movie, as a performance. It was tremendously received by critics, ultimately, and almost a billion dollars around the world at the box office. But when did you know that you'd done a really good job here? That's a great question.
1: Certainly not during the shoot I never feel like that about any job oh. um, I, and the way Chris works like you don't look at anything like I hadn't seen a frame of the movie until I saw the movie wow you know and I then I remember I saw the movie in Chris's screening room in his house um, with my wife and my son and um, I knew it was something special like I, I did know it was something special I honestly didn't know how special it was mm-hmm. and I struggled looking at my own work but then, the more people that began to see it, start. Everyone that saw it felt like, "Oh, this is something special." Now we still didn't know what the world was going to feel about it or react to it. But then, as we began to put it out in the world, that same reaction seemed to be the case. I remember seeing. We. I remember. I, I've only watched it twice in my life. One was at Chris's screening room, and then we. I watched it at the the, the Paris premiere. Yes. And uh, I remember when it, the, you know the. The credits ended and the lights went up, nobody got up. Everyone st- sat there because they were too stunned. Right. And, and then eventually people started like whispering to each other. Yeah. And I felt, oh my goodness, this this film is different. Setting, yeah.
0: With our last minute or so, can I just throw a few random, just first thing that comes to mind, uh things at yeah. you? What have you made of this whole award season experience? This whole nonstop you know, circuit on the, it's, that's celebrating deservedly yeah. great work, but it's, it's got to be a little bit of an unusual thing. I mean, you, to an extent, were part of it as far back as Breakfast yeah. on Pluto, but this is a movie that there's not anything that it's not invited to or it's being celebrated. Yeah, on. I mean, I think
1: everyone knows it's kind of not my, that my, my, not my, like, forte <laughs> being on the red carpet, but I, but I have to say, you know, I think I'm getting better at it. Yeah. I'm certainly enjoying it. And as you said, like, it's such a massive celebration of the film and the fact that people uh, in our industry are responding so well to it and the critics are responding so well to it and people are still going to see the movie in the theatre, you know, yeah. when, it, when we put it back out again. So it's been so humbling and flattering and and, and and the bonus for me, I keep saying to everyone, the bonus for me is you get put in these rooms, right? And you get all these incredible filmmakers and directors and actors around. So you get to talk to them and i i would never get that opportunity normally to to be in these rooms with people so i've loved that i've relished talking to other filmmakers about their work
0: well that's that leads into the next of these uh rabbit fire what's been sort of the most pinch me conversation meeting experience whatever of, of this season oh you mean like in terms of who i've yeah, met meeting somebody seeing so, you know i know there's whether at the AFI lunch or there's a million there's yeah. rooms where it's pretty uh, surreal, uh, right? You know,
1: I'm a massive Succession fan. Yeah, I adore that show. So I got to talk to Kieran Culkin, and that was pretty. That was that was I was a bit of a fanboy <laughs> when I was talking to him. That was a big moment for me. I adore that show. Nice. I've seen a few of those guys around, and and we 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 chatted. So that that
0: that 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 was pretty amazing. In terms of what's next for you, I know there's th- this comes back in, on one level to Enda Walsh, yeah. but also something else was announced today. And so if, can you just catch people up on where the two things, I guess, where they'll next get to to see you? So we made a film called Small
1: Things Like These, which was based on the book by the same title, but written by Clara Keegan. And I had read the book and I thought this could be a beautiful film. So I called Enda Walsh, my old pal from yes. Disco Pigs days. <laughs> And he adapted and wrote a beautiful screenplay for us. And then I, 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 Matt Damon's uh, studio paid for it. Matt, Matt and Ben's studio paid for it. And uh, it's going to premiere, it's going to open the Berlin Film Festival on the 15th of February. Just a few days from now. Yeah. yeah. And I'm really excited about it. It's a, yeah. We're really proud of the film. And, and then kind of as a result of that, uh, me and my producing partner, Alan Maloney, we set up a... a a production company called Big Things Films and we are going to make our next film in the summer with Netflix and it's a, it's a script called Steve and it's a adaptation of a Max Porter book called Shy and Max has written the script for us. So, nice. yeah, things are, things are moving along nicely.
0: Very nice. Stephen Knight has talked about at, at what, some point of uh, perhaps World War Two set feature film of Pe- uh-huh. Peaky Blinders. Is that going to happen? Is that something you'd be part of? Listen, I, this is the question I get asked most. Most? Okay, <laughs> apologies. But no, yeah. it's fine.
1: Because I, I know that this is, you know, pe- people still care about yeah, it. And yeah. I've always said, I'll be there. You yeah. know, if there's more story to tell, I'll be there. So, you know, hopefully we can make it happen. But I don't want to give people any false hopes. So.
0: Another one that I'm I, in advance, apologize for, because I suspect you get this a lot too. But there are a lot of people who would like you to be the next James Bond. Is that something you would entertain?
1: Oh, man, I think I'm too old for that now. It's, it's really? And I, and, and I mean, I have said on record in the past, I think it should be a woman, which... Yeah. But, but I do think, it, I, I think, like, I'm, I'm 47, I think I'm
0: <laughs> over the hill, that that ship has sailed. Oh, God. Yeah. And finally, I've heard that you have some things that you would like to do at some point that are maybe might come as a bit of a surprise, unexpected to people, a musical, a Western. What are... What just, you know, is that true? What are what are your what's on your wish list, your bucket list, as they said? Yeah, I've always loved
1: Westerns and watching Westerns when I was a kid at home with my dad and I got a Sunday afternoon, whatever. I've always loved them. They don't, people don't seem to want to make them anymore. You know, I mean, there was a bit of a Western element in Peaky, I yeah. think, you know, Uh and musicals. Yes. I mean, I don't love musicals musicals but i like the idea of subverting the genre a little bit cuz i do love singing yeah. and i love playing guitar and i love music so if there was a way of integrating that you know i never want to be in a biopic of musicians cuz uh, for me they generally don't work but yeah. a musical uh but like a dark subverted grungy kind of musical that might be something that might be
0: curious. All right, screenwriters, you have your marching orders. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Thank you so much for doing this. And congratulations! There's a, a beautiful, beautiful, not just Albin however, so many of these. It's really a treat to get to speak with you. I appreciate I it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, yeah. man. Thanks for listening to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate it and would really appreciate you taking just a minute more to subscribe to the podcast and to leave us a rating and review on your podcast app and to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is at Awards Chatter. On those platforms, we announce upcoming guests and provide details about special live recordings of the podcast that you can attend. Until next time, thanks again for tuning in. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say.